Hello and welcome, independent researchers, skeptics, and all of humankind, the Shadow Citizen. Welcome to episode 12 with Tony Zambodi. You can listen to us live and chat with us at mixlr.com slash word shadow citizen. We are also simulcast at Radio Confluence, and from there you can take us with you on TuneIn and Xeno Live. Uh, my name is Rob O'Sell, and my co-host is... Rachel L. McIntosh. And today, I'm very, very pleased to have with us Tony Zambodi. And he is with the architects and engineers of 9-11 Truth. And I just before the show, we were listening to some of the clips of 9-11. And I have to just say, I my stomach sank thinking about 9-11. So I might break down in the middle of this whole thing. Um, Tony, let me introduce him. He was He is a mechanical design engineer with over 30 years of structural design experience. And he's in the aerospace and communication industries. At one point in his career, he worked for RCA, the broadcast company. And it was the company that designed and built the antenna stack on the North Tower. Since 2006, he has authored or co-authored a number of technical papers on the WTC high-rise failures that are published in the Journal of 9-11 Studies and the International Journal of Protective Structures. And I really want to thank you for being with us, Tony. Thank you. And everybody, say hi to everybody. Thank you for being with us, Tony. Oh, it's nice to be here, Rachel. And uh, it's a big hello for your audience. I hope they get something out of it. Yeah, me too. Um, now, listen, why don't we start this off with just a recap? Tell us, like, as if nobody knew what 9-11 was. Let's hear it from you. Just tell us what 9-11 was, when it happened, and then we'll roll into why 9-11, the architects for 9-11 Truth, busted onto the scene yeah um well everybody knows sort of what 9-11 was in the sense of uh, uh this the story the official story that the uh, government has given us is uh that 19 arab hijackers hijacked four planes air, air airliners uh, i guess uh two from boston one from uh, newark and one that came out of newark and one that came out of uh, Dulles Airport in Washington, which is Reagan now. Um, <clears throat> at any rate, and that they uh, one wound up crashing in a field in Pennsylvania, in Western Pennsylvania. One hit the Pentagon, and two flew into the World Trade Center tower, the Twin Towers, both the South and North Tower. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> you know, many of us accepted, you know, the, the buildings collapsed, uh, the planes, you know, actually. You know, they were doing uh, 450 to 550 miles an hour and penetrated the buildings and did a good bit of structural damage. And the fuel started fires, ignited fires on multiple floors in the buildings. And then we all watched the buildings collapse or on, certainly people saw replays of the video. Of that. Yeah, over and over and over. It was almost like it was like giving <laughs> right. us post-traumatic stress, what they were doing to us on TV. Right. But go ahead. So, I mean, the... Uh, you know, this was a very traumatic thing. Uh, close to 3,000 people were killed between the Pentagon, the plane that crashed in Western Pennsylvania, and those in the planes and the buildings, the collapsed buildings in New York, New York City. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, of course, that precipitated the, the war 
on terror that uh, President George W. Bush and Vice President Dick Cheney pushed for. And I guess it was about 2006, uh, some questions started coming up. And, uh, you know, the, there was a physics professor from uh, Brigham Young University Mm-hmm. named Stephen Jones, a well-known physics professor. Um, he had worked for the Department of Energy for 25 years as a physicist. So this was not a, a greenhorn or somebody given to uh, wacky theories that he, there's apparently molten metal, uh, molten iron and steel in the rubble under the uh, two twin towers. And I meant to, I forgot to mention that in addition to two towers collapsing, there was a building that was 350 feet away from the closest tower. Right. It was known as World Trade Center Building 7. And it was across Veazey Street. There was a large street between the towers were in a basically one city block, a 16-acre block. Uh, there were streets around it. And this building was not in that block. It was across the street from that block. And then 350 feet away from the closest tower, which was the North Tower and the second tower to collapse. And it, turned, it it collapsed itself at 5.20 p.m. or 5.21 p.m. Yeah, right around yeah. there, which was seven hours after the second tower, the North Tower, collapsed. And um, <clears throat> there was also uh, molten metal in its rubble. And the I, I either it was, I think, the USGS or, or NOAA or NASA, somebody flew a plane over five days later, September 16th, to uh, look for hot spots because the firemen were having quite a bit of trouble. It was very hot. And it turned out that on the surface, temperatures were as high as, in a, in a number of places, just under the buildings, were as high as 1,300 degrees Fahrenheit. Holy that's moly, the, wow. That's on the surface, on the surface, okay? It was a thermal imaging uh, thing they did. And um, so, <laughs> at any rate, uh, this professor in... Late 2005, he found out about this Building 7, and there was video of it. There was quite a bit of video of it. Yeah. And uh, the way it comes down, it comes down fully symmetrically, and it falls very quite rapidly. Um, and he felt it looked like controlled demolition. And then he's hearing about this molten metal in the rubble, and he theorized that it looks like there were uh, this molten metal was due to the use of incendiaries, mm-hmm. uh, what they call thermite. Uh, which generates heat as high as 4,500 to 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and steel melts at about 27 to 2,800 Fahrenheit. And if that was used, he felt that that could bring the buildings down and may have been used to keep the sound level down. Tony, can and, I can I jump in right here? Uh, sure. Yeah, I wanna I wanna just say too that I, I that's kind of the event you know that woke me up too was uh, Professor Jones, because I was I'd been watching Democracy Now with Amy Goodman and I was getting up to turn it off and I heard and up next uh, you know scholars will speak about 9-11 truth and I go what do you mean 9-11 truth and I went and sat back down and watched it and my jaw just you know dropped I was like holy cow and there was no they didn't have any video or anything I'm just listening to you know Kevin Ryan Stephen Jones Kevin Ryan worked for Underwriters Laboratory and he had submitted a, a a a paper saying that no, we tested those beams. They, there's no way temperatures got hot enough to distort those beams, and so uh, you know, the, there's all these people presenting all this evidence, and I'm kind of like, 
you know, I was like everybody else. We've been we've been brought up in this uh, age of you know every car that goes through a, 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 a you know a fence and goes over the uh, you know goes through space you know hits the ground and bursts into flames. We were all brought up on TV, and here's the first event that was actually covered live, and we're watching it. So anyway, and and you know it, it wasn't just Stephen Jones that thought that uh, this was a controlled demolition on that very day. Here's Dan rather i'm going to play this uh this clip real quick now here we're going to show you a videotape of the collapse itself that now we go to videotape the collapse of this building it's amazing a, a amazing incredible pick your word for the third time today it's reminiscent of those pictures we've all seen too much on television before when a building was deliberately destroyed, destroyed by well-placed dynamite to knock it down. Now, the thing that's really interesting there is that pause. I didn't edit it, that at all. So that was, they're showing the building collapse, and that was a seven-second pause for a 47 building to uh, come down. So, Tony, yeah. explain to us why that seems so, uh, you know, improbable to say Un the least. Unusual, right, improbable, improbable, unusual. Uh, incredible, pick your word, like Dan, Dan Rather said himself. Um, the building is 610 foot tall, 47 stories. Each story is about 13 foot tall because, as you realize, in a building like that, they have a drop ceiling to cover the beams and, and uh, girders and the, the plumbing and, and uh, all the conduit up, in, you know, up above the ceiling. So each floor was 13, 13 feet tall times 47. It was 610 foot tall. Or 611 foot tall. Um, at any rate, it's quite large. I mean, if you look at a tower that's 600 foot tall, it's quite, you're looking up, you're straining your neck, neck back if you're right next to it. So this thing comes, it was also, interestingly, it was also, each floor was an acre in size in both Twin Towers and Building 7. Building 7 was trapezoidal in shape. On the long side, it was like 330 feet. On the shorter side, 247 and then uh, it was 144 foot wide, so similar to a football field, if you will, in, uh, in length and width, very close to that. Uh, it had 82 very large columns, 24 in what they call a central core, where the elevators were and, and stairwells, and then there was beams and girders going out to the 82 columns on the periphery, on the exterior. And it comes down, all four corners start dropping simultaneously. Okay, of this very large building. Um, so that causes concern in the sense of whether they tried to say this official story, which took seven years to generate, says it came down by fire. There were fires and, and, in it. And this this official story, this is the NIST report? The NIST uh, wrote the report on World Trade Center Building 7, yes. Yeah, okay. They so released we'll it, yeah, they released it in September they first brought it out in August of 2008. That was a draft, and there was a press conference where some questions were asked, and uh, and then they released it in November of 2008. Well, during that press conference, it turns out a, a physics teacher from California named David Chandler had measured the fall of this building, uh, measuring the corner using some computer software program named Tracker, um, and he determined that it was in full free fall acceleration. 
and what that means is it's a full gravitational acceleration as if there's no resistance. It's like dropping your keys or a rock from your hand, you know, four or five feet up in the air where there's no resistance other than air resistance, which is very minimal. Um, so if something's in full free fall gravitational acceleration, there can be no resistance because as soon as you do any work, crushing or bending something, you're going to expend energy. All the potential energy has to be being converted to kinetic, which is energy in motion, um, in order to have full free fall acceleration. As soon as you do any work, you're, you're taking some of the potential energy to do work. It's not available for to become kinetic energy. So you can't have full free fall. You're going to slow down. Well, this was in full free fall acceleration for over 100 feet which is about eight stories. And uh, he brought that up in that uh, press conference that NIST had in August 2008, and they stumbled a little bit, and then they had to, when they went back to write the final report that was put out in November, they admitted to that freefall. They found out themselves that it was in freefall. Prior to that, they had said it was in 60% of freefall. Mm -hmm. It was 40% slower, but in fact, it was in full freefall. The, unfortunately, they didn't explain it. They admitted it was in free fall, but they didn't explain it. It's, and that's caused a number of us to say, wait a minute, how does this building go in the free fall in, in a collapse that was allegedly due to fire? It, it's collapsing all four corners of the roof, go into full free fall acceleration, you know, yeah. at the now, same course, time. Right. And of course, before this ever happened, no building of this type of construction had ever fallen like that. Through the fire, By well, fire. It, it, gets, it gets better, yeah. It turns out a number of people brought this up. Well, NIST even brought it up. The no steel-framed high-rise building. We're talking about a superstructure-type building where columns are on top of columns. It's a grid going up. No building of that type of construction has ever collapsed, completely collapsed due to fire. There's been a partial collapse here or there in a small area, but it's not like a big warehouse with one big roof. If that gets hot, it's got just got thin trusses mm -hmm. on holding the roof up. They have collapsed in the past. But this isn't like that. These are massive columns, okay, that are going, you know, where the columns are, you know, have like five-inch thick flanges, okay, mm -hmm. lowered down in the building. They're quite large, okay. Um, it takes a lot of heat to heat them to the point of failure. I mean, tremendous amount of energy. And usually you don't have that much energy in an office fire. Yeah. So that's why they don't come down because, in other words, it'd be like when you put something in your oven, it takes longer to cook, much longer to cook a 30-pound turkey than it does a 10-pound turkey, right? And yeah. Everybody that cooks knows that. And the reason is there's thermal mass. It takes time to heat that mass to, the, to a, a specific temperature. We actually call that... There's a word for it called specific heat capacity. <clears throat> and you can, it is the same for a given material. Uh, I think uh, steel is something like uh, 500 uh, joules per kilogram per degree Celsius or, or centigrade or Kelvin. Uh, so you need that much heat to heat each kilogram, that much energy. And a joule is like nine inch pounds. So just to give you a feel for energy there. And an inch pound is how much energy you'd need to raise one pound, one inch. So um, 
it, it, each each kilogram of steel, uh, just to give you a, a, an idea, each kilogram of steel. If you have a beam, uh, say forty five foot long, there's there's a beam they say fell that heated up to five hundred degrees centigrade, and this beam weighs about fifty eight hundred and fifty pounds. No, so, no, that that's kind of just another improbable thing right there. Is that a single beam? The collapse of one beam is what caused a chain reaction that brought the whole building down, and it right, brought well, it down I, into I, a symmetrical collapse. You know, that's highly right, improbable. Right. right. I'm going to get into that in a second. <laughs> okay. How they, how the, how the official, present official story claims this building collapsed. And I'm just trying to say, the amount of energy required is is enormous. And uh, to heat that beam up, I'm just going to do a calculation real quick. Uh, I believe the specific heat of steel, I'm just going to look it up real quick, if you don't mind. On, no, on go the, right ahead. Go right ahead. Since we're on the radio, um, and I can do it on the computer real quick, but I think it's somewhere on 500 kilos. I just want to make sure. Yeah, you so can I'm make not, sure. I'm not I'll, sure. I want to make a comment about something. When you said something mm-hmm. earlier, Rob, you said, oh, we were all watching this in, on in live TV, and it was live, and there was, a, there was just a, a delay. And I just wanted to point out that the, what it was marked live, it was um, – that footage was taken with a West Cam military-grade camera. I worked for the company that made that camera. And um, that was flying around in an unmarked helicopter that day. And it just so happened to be right there to get that film, to be able to film that. And it force pushed that out to, um, it went to ABC7. That was the first place that got that, ABC7 in New York. And then that went force pushed out to CNN, Fox, and NBC marked as live. And so everybody- So there was was a delay already. And everybody was uh, getting the same feed, and it was, now you're telling, and this is something new that I didn't know, and uh, Tony, if you didn't know, uh, Rachel you know, worked for a defense contractor, and they had uh, prior knowledge, uh, you know, of, of Building 7, and, uh, well, Rachel, you explain it. Well, yeah, this is one of those things. We had, um, we were trying to sell our division to whoever would take us. Um, we were working with a company called plan graphics and plan graphics. Their big deal was that they had already mapped out all the buildings, most of the buildings in Manhattan. And they had, we had called them into the office and our, we had like a command and control center for a crisis situation because we were selling a type of crisis, um, software, um, for, for emergency managers. And we brought them in, and they had blueprints. And one of the blueprints that the, they had was a building seven. And I did was I was asking the guys that were there because it was such a big meeting. I mean, it was a ridiculously important meeting. And I set the meeting up with plain graphics because I had actually met them at um, Drumthwacket, the mayor's, the governor's mansion in New Jersey. And they were looking to sell their business. So I was hoping our division would buy them, and I was trying to hook this all up. And meanwhile, little did I know, our CEO of our company was trying to sell our company. So we were all there together trying to work some sort of deal. I don't know. But um, so I saw the blueprints for Building 7, and this guy from Playing Graphics, we were just, you know, chewing the fat before the big meeting. 
And, you know, I'm trying to make conversation and there's really nothing to talk about. So I said, oh, you know, what's, what's going on with this? He goes, tell, told me what building it was and how, what the things were. And I, and I said, oh, what's this thing right here? And he was like, well, this right here is if this building has to come down, it would fall along this line. And he just run his finger down it like that. And I was like, oh, and at the time I wasn't thinking about any of this stuff. This was probably, I don't know. I want to say maybe a year, not even, not even a year before September 11th, but it was definitely, I would say nine months before. Well, let's get back to our guest, Tony. Uh, keep yeah. keep going. So, you know. Right. Well, I was trying to tell you this one beam, <coughs> um, just a common beam in Building 7 where they said the failure occurred, a girder, I should say, uh, was what they call a W33 by 130. So it was 33 inches deep and weighed 130 pounds per foot, linear foot. So I just want to show you um, <clears throat> that girder would weigh, it was 45 foot long, would weigh somewhere around 5,850 pounds. And to raise its temperature one degree centigrade, I just want to tell you how many foot pounds that would take. It's 978,316 foot pounds, okay? to raise its temperature one degree centigrade, all right? To raise its temperature to 600 degrees centigrade, you got to multiply that by 600. So, um, you know, that's, or, or 580, I should say. So just to give you that number in foot pounds, that is uh, 567 million foot pounds. And if I divide that by the 5850, I can tell you how high it's the amount of energy to raise that to a certain height. Okay. Um, and they're attributing this energy generation by office fires, correct? You know, just uh, the furniture right. and carpet and stuff in the file cabinets. That All that stuff has been fireproofed. Right, right. That's the amount of energy it would take to raise this 5,800-pound girder 97,000 feet in the air. To raise its temperature from 20 room temperature to 600 degrees centigrade, where it loses about half its strength, takes is the same amount of energy as lifting that from the ground 97,000 feet in the air. That's how much energy. That's incredible. So, uh, yeah. man. Just, I'm just trying to give people a feel for how much energy is required to raise these massive amounts of structural steel to raise their temperature. It's enormous amounts of energy. There's not that much energy in the fire. The fire has a tremendous amount of energy. I'm not belittling that. I'm just saying it takes even a lot more. And then there's only enough fuel generally in office fires, and this admits this, they burn out. They burn for anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes in a given area, and then they move. They burned out the fuel, okay? You know, eventually it goes out. Uh, it's it's nowhere near a peak. I mean, it rises and then it falls. So that's the reason these buildings don't come down because to get the, the steel to the temperatures required to cause it to fail, and that's also a function of what we call a factor of safety. And in these buildings, it was generally around three. Um, you need to heat them to where they lost two-thirds of their strength. They don't lose two-thirds of their strength to eat up around 700 degrees centigrade. So that's even more energy than I just told you that you would need to heat like a common girder like that where they said the the failure occurred. 
Now, to get to the failure that the, the National Institute of Standards and Technology was given the task, and we're talking about this third building that fell at 520 afternoon, that was not hit by a plane. It fell after 5 p.m., okay, seven hours later after the two towers. And they say it, it was done by fire, and it caught the eye of many of us because of the way it falls. It falls symmetrically, this very large building, and it falls in free-fall acceleration. That's a, that's a dilemma. Well, so that's another thing about this building is it wasn't just a, a, a common, you know, office building. This one was built pretty much extra stout because of all the agencies that were in there. And this right. is where Giuliani actually had his bunker for uh, for command and control of any sort yeah, of. Well, we can talk about the IRS was in there, the Secret Service, CIA had a big office, the biggest office out of Langley, outside of Langley, Virginia. Biggest CIA office was in Building 7. There was also a very large Securities and Exchange Commission office there uh, on the 12th and 13th floor, which is where they say the failure started, by the way. And where oh, there were figures, parties. because that's where Enron's papers were, Well, right? Well, the, there are people that say the Enron California ripoff papers were there. And WorldCom, too, is the other rumor. And yeah, WorldCom and Citicorp. And there was, let, let's, I think it's sufficient to say, we don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. the terminus. There were very paper intensive case files on a large number of suspicious uh, transactions and, and business dealings in that building. And those cases were lost. So that's on the 12th and 13th floor. And that's where. There were fires started on 10 floors, and it's very strange because there was no fires. Um, no, there's no photographic evidence of any fires in this building until 1215, and the North Tower, the second one that collapsed, collapsed at 1028, which means it was an hour and 47 minutes before anybody noticed fire in this building after the second tower. It's also 350 feet away, and in order to have fires start from the collapse of the North Tower, which... Uh, you know, flaming items would have to fly 350 feet horizontally, break through the windows, and, and everything was in glass, and they were very heavy windows, and star fires on 10 floors. And in addition, next to build, adjacent to Building 7 was the U.S. Post Office building and on the other side, the Verizon building. Neither one of them had fires. They had some damage, minor damage. Neither one of them had fires, only Building 7. So that's suspicious also. Mm -hmm. And this just says that the fires were started by the collapse of the North Tower. They don't investigate it. They don't talk to anybody. They just say that. And they just, um, <laughs> they just happen. So, they start on the floors where all the directors are kept for, for so, the... Right. They, and on, on top of this, though, was Rudy Giuliani's command and control center. Well, and he didn't use it that day. And he wasn't there that day, which he is interesting. This was before the towers came down. If nobody knew the towers were coming down, Rudy Giuliani did not go to his bunker, which he built on the 23rd floor. Mm -hmm. Very strange to build a bunker on the 23rd yeah. floor. That's why did. one of the things, the reason why we're with Plan Graphics, like I said, the company I worked for, we built command and control like rooms. And um, we had the software that we would install. And we were putting in um, a proposal for that room. So that's, I'm trying to think of the timeline of this. So it's got to be around that time when they were building that. Well, room. the late nineties is when that was done. When okay. That, so uh, it's, when that office of emergency management was, uh, was erected, I believe, but whoever did that, 
interestingly, would have had access to the entire building for backup power and uh, life systems for the mm -hmm. Office of Emergency Management on the 23rd floor. And interestingly, it's right in the middle of the 47 stories. So, Perfect. You know, yeah. So, but, and he didn't use it that day. And that was before the towers came down. So it's strange that he wouldn't use it. Um, you know, whether they can say that they thought there was another plane was going to hit it. I don't know why they would necessarily believe that. But he did not use that building. And there's a lot of talk about uh, the, a lot of... It was on fire, though. They noticed fires in it at 12.15 a.m., an hour and 47 minutes after the North Tower came down. And uh, the firefighters didn't fight the fire because an engineer from Rudy Giuliani's office said that the building was going to collapse in four hours or so. Nobody knows who this engineer is now. Well, that would be quite prescient. And NIST said that the collapse started in the northeast corner where these five beams that were framed into a girder pushed that girder past its seat at this large corner core column, column 79, and that girder fell off its seat, and then when it hit the next floor down, it broke through it, and there was a cascade of floors, and that column had three girders coming into it. The one girder was from the north, they said, fell off its seat. The other two from the south and the west, they say their connections broke due to thermal, thermal expansion. They don't show the analysis for this. Uh, they won't give us that. In, um, in your open letter to uh, Dr. Bazant, if I got his name right, uh, you yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. Uh, stiffeners being added to the beam. That they that that their report, the NIST report, says that those you know it doesn't account for those stiffeners being there. Right. And, well, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. So I just want to say what their failure mode is. <clears throat> they say this girder was pushed off its seat. It caused a cascade of eight floors that left the column unsupported from the north, but. A column, just like a quarter column on the outside, only needs two two beams coming into it. It needs lateral support every story. Otherwise, it gets too slender and it will buckle under its own weight. But these columns can go several stories without any lateral support. But the common practice is to support them every story because you need to support the floors. But those beams coming into the column also keep it from, from getting spindly, okay, in, this, in, a, in, a, in a colloquial sense. Uh, it's too slender. So it's only about six-tenths of the axial load on the column that you need to support it with from the side every story. It's not a lot. Uh, the code says 2%, but you really only need about 6%. They're giving it like a factor of safety. At any rate, they say that these other girders coming into that, it was a corner core column. There's 24 columns in the core, central core. It was an, an interior column. And they say that these other connections broke over like eight stories or so and left this column without lateral support for eight or nine stories. And that caused it to buckle. And then that caused a start starting in the northeast corner of the building. That caused a progression from north to south of the other columns uh, and then east to west. And that the whole interior came down and then the exterior was left as a thin shell and it buckled under its own weight. Now, when you watch this build, that's pretty hard to do that. Um, normally, when the interior starts going down, if you don't have uh, lateral support for a large number of stories, those columns are going to start to buckle. And in this report, on the, when the east side, they, they show it starting on the east side in, a, in an animation. But the exterior columns start to buckle in at the top when they lose lateral support over 15, 20 stories. We don't see that in the actual collapse. We don't see what this is showing. Um, 
and and this stops their analysis, their animation after a couple seconds. So, well, what ahead. I was going to say, so um, architects and engineers, I heard they were going to actually build a model, like a total mock-up of Building they Seven. Are, they are the virtual a virtual model. Virtual, fin okay. Finite element analysis is being done at the University of Alaska as we speak. Okay. There's okay. was a contract let, and that's being done to investigate this. Okay, so it's not a real. It's not like they're building a real building just to knock it down. No, this is virtual. It's in the computer. Building, yeah, right. It's yeah. Okay. Computer. All right. Okay. And that's and that's what NIST did, but the, this won't release their data. Mm. NIST had contractors do this. Um, they did some themselves in house, and they had other a couple contractors uh, that they, they work with. Um, and anyway, the problem for them is when we got these drawings. The drawings were released to an FOF Freedom of Information Act request about three and a half years after the final report was released. And it okay. turns out that they left pertinent structural features off of things in that initiation. It's specifically stiffeners on the end of that girder. They say that the girder, when the girder's web, a girder's like a beam, an eye shape. When its right. web is past its seat, there was 65,000 pounds of load. It was 130,000 pounds on the girder totally. So on each end, it would be 65,000 pounds. And the girder wet, uh, seat was about seven eighths of an inch thick. It was 11 and, inch, 11 and a half inch wide girder. The flange was uh, that it's sitting on the seat, but it's got the central web, which is taking the load. When that went past, the central web went past the seat, the 12 inch wide seat it was sitting on, if it was pushed six inches or so, all that load would be on the eight, seven eighths thick flange which, you know, has some width, but it's relatively thin, right? And okay. that that would fold up and bend and fall. What they left off was stifters, 18-inch high stifters that were three-quarters thick that came out all the way from the web out to the flange at the end of the beam or girder where it was sitting on the seat. Well, that makes, that stiffens that flange like, that makes it like 89 times stronger, okay? And the amount of, of, it was under strength to fail by about two or three to one. Well, 89 times stronger is a lot more than two or three. It wouldn't fail. When you do the stress analysis with the stifters in there, it's way beyond, it's, it's far away from failing. So something, something's wrong with that. Like, so in, for the that thing to happen, it would be that stiffener thing. It would have the to be. stiffener would stop it from happening. So what they're saying happened couldn't possibly happen if they had the right parts on there. They uh -huh. left them off of their analysis. Uh-huh. Found that later when we got the drawings and they were confronted about this. Okay. And they didn't answer at first. It took them 19 months to come back and admit they left the stifters off. And they said because their analysis showed they weren't needed. Because they oh. were well, and, and just just by chance in the unlikely event that, that that particular girder was placed on Monday morning and someone happened to forget the stiffeners. They they certainly didn't uh, forget them on all the core columns and all the beams in the rest of the no, building. No, no, no. Well, they, but they, those stiffers weren't on everything. In fairness, Rob. Okay. They were on. They were in certain situations. That particular girder that they say failed. This is a critical part of their hypothesis because the beams are framing into it from one side, so it can push it. You know, it can push it away. But they left the stiffeners off of there, and you can see those stiffeners on that that particular girder in pictures. They're there, okay? They left it off, and they're on the drawings. 
They left it out of their analysis. In other words, it's like I'm taking things off the analysis to prove something would fail that wouldn't if I had kept left those things in, included. Well, that's yeah. you're not supposed to do that. You're certainly yeah, not supposed to. They made a report that made it go along with the, the quote-unquote official story that they've told us on TV. And they had to fudge it to do that. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to get at. They yeah. had to fudge things to get it to go the way they wanted. And there's other things that are wrong with their story, too, besides that. Um, now, you wrote this letter, uh, you know, questioning these things that appear to be admitted, whether on purpose or not. But how long ago did you write this letter, and did you ever get a response to it? What are you talking about? Letters to NIST? No, the letter to the, uh, Dr. Bazant that you opened. Well, he wasn't involved in Building 7. He only talks about the towers. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. That, that only concerns the towers. Um, the NIST, was, several letters are written to NIST by different people, different engineers and others. So, um, Did they respond? Did they respond, Tony? They did eventually, yeah. Yeah, they did. And they said they left the stiffeners off because... Uh, their analysis said that they were for web crippling. That's buckling of the of the web, uh, and they weren't needed. There would be their analysis showed there would be no web crippling. Well, they also stiffen the flange. Okay, it's sort of like, you know, it's sort of like I have a bracket coming off the wall that's that's holding up the shelf. It holds up the shelf, but it also stiffens the wall. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's that kind of thing. And they left them off, and the flange would not break. If those stiffeners were there. Well, there's another problem too, okay? Because the column they say that the girder was pushed, that, that framed into, that the seat was on, that column had what they call build up plates. If you can imagine an I shaped column and you take side plates and put them against the open part where the flanges are, that's called a build up column. That's what column 79 was. So it was like a box column with a web in the center because you took these side plates and enclosed it. And those side plates protruded about 1.8 inches. And this girder, when it, it expanded, would have been up against the column. And when it was pushed to the west, would have gotten trapped behind that side plate. Okay? They completely ignore that. So, and, and there was another outfit named uh, AROP, an engineer, AROP Engineering, that did, there was a lawsuit on this between Aegis Insurance Company and the Con Edison. There was a there was a, an electrical uh, substation on the the first two floors of Building Seven on its south. I guess it's north side. Mm -hmm. it, it essentially was the first two floors of the building on on the back side, and it um, they filed suit against Silverstein or WTC Seven Properties and the engineer Canner Engineering. And that suit went to the U.S. District Court in Manhattan and then the Circuit Court of Appeals. And it was finally decided, in, I think, December of 2014. And they just threw it out saying they, they tried to say the building was designed negligently. And the court threw it out. Well, what do you expect? It was 9-11. It was, it was silly. Um, and there was a dissent. The judge, uh, one judge said, uh, you know, we want to know how the building came down. But they never did get to that. And in that analysis, they put those stifters in there. They also showed that that girder could not be pushed past those side plates on the column. So they basically nullify the NIST's report. But many people don't know about that. 
Well, you brought up a name that's also interesting. Larry Silverstein was had leased these uh, properties. What was it? It was less than a half year. It was you know four or five. Okay, years. all right. Well, you're getting into the towers now. We're talking about this third building right now. Uh, okay, uh, uh, and I, seven. you know, we've got 20 minutes left, so maybe we should. Okay, switch all right. Well, now we bit. can shift to the towers. Okay. So what I'm what I'm going to say, I'm going to wrap up with Building Seven. There are many questions of Building Seven. It's in free fall acceleration. The NIST initiation hypothesis is provably false. Provably false. People need to know that. And that's not because I want to say that. The engineering, they leave parts out that would stop the failures they allege occur. So it's provably false. So we have this third building that comes down in what certainly appears to be a full controlled demolition. It's coming down a free fall, the entire building, all four corners simultaneously for over 100 feet. In free fall, that can only happen in a controlled demolition. You can't get that naturally. And then the National Institute of Standards and Technology report, I'm going to say, is essentially fraudulent because it leaves parts out that would stop the failures that they say occurred. Well, okay, yeah. be, I, have, I have to ask. Wait, 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 Rob. You said, wait a second. The, ta the towers have to do with Silverstein. Okay, did we're going Silver, to, to. But wait a second. But did did Silverstein have anything to do with Building Seven, though? Silverstein he owned, he owned Building Seven outright. Well, and in two thousand one, he acquired the Twin Towers. He leased them for ninety nine years from the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey for one hundred fifteen million a year in two thousand one. In July of two thousand one, he insured them against terrorism because you had the ninety three bombing. I mean, that was legitimate. But he insured them for $3.2 billion. And after it happened, after 9-11, he tried to claim it was two different terrorist attacks and get double that $3.2 billion. So he wound up getting something like $860 million for Building 7. He got a $3.2 billion for the towers. And then he got another, he got $4.55 billion for the towers total. So oh. he got a parcel. He didn't get full double indemnity, but he got some... He got more than one times the $3.2 billion for the towers. And I'm going to jump in right now because I have that clip that I'm sure you've heard a hundred times, but uh, I'm going to play it one more time. It's Larry Silverstein uh, saying that we made the decision because you talked about you know prior knowledge. They seemed to know that Building 7 was going to come down before it did. Right. I remember getting a call from the uh, fire department commander telling me that they were not sure they were going to be able to contain the fire. I said, you know, we've had such terrible loss of life. And this one thing to do is, is pull. Uh, and they made that decision to pull. And then we watched the building collapse. And then with all the citizen journalists that are out there, we have, you know, uncovered several clips of firefighters and that, you know, before the building comes down, talking about it about to come down. So I've got a few of those that are compressed together here. Keep your eye on that building. It's coming down. The building is about to blow up. Move it back. All right, guys. We are walking back. There's a building about to blow up. Flame. Debris coming down. So we've got people that are talking about, uh, you know, an event before it is initiated, and we have now, you know, architects and engineers such as yourself that can do the real hard math and uh, say that, yeah, the, the the explanation they gave for the collapse of Building 7 is completely 
unrealistic. It's just uh, it couldn't happen that way. Anyway, yeah. No. Now let's go over to the Twin Towers and the time that we right. have. Left. I just want to mention one more quick thing about Building Seven. They can't even when you do the math, you can't even break through the next floor down, even if that girder did come off its seat, and that's provable. But now let's go to the towers. Larry Silverstein, the owner of Building Seven, the building that came down in a funny way. On on uh, we don't know for sure how the fire started in it. And it certainly came down in a funny way, and they're trying to say it was fire. So it looks like a controlled demolition. They don't want to admit that, and the report can't show it came down by fire. Nobody's shown plausibly how that could come down by fire. So we're asking big questions about that. Now, as far as the towers are concerned, Silverstein, like I said, he bought or he, he leased them for 99 years at $115 million a year from the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey in 2001, insured them against terrorism and collected on that afterwards. And of course, we have the new World One World Trade Center built there now and some other buildings. Um, the towers were hit with aircraft and uh, about 15% of the, of the columns were destroyed or severed, uh, severely damaged or severed. Uh, those, those towers had a 47 column uh, central core, very stout, uh, very large columns. Uh, that core was, the buildings were uh, 207 feet on a side. Each floor was an acre, a little over 40,000 square feet. An acre is about 43,000 square feet. They were 42, um, between 42 and 40. An acre is 209 uh, feet on a side. The buildings at the bottom were that, and then they transitioned from larger columns, 10 feet apart, to 14-inch box columns, 59 on a side, 40 inches on center. And then when they transitioned, they got uh, a foot on each side smaller so that it was, they were 207-foot square, those buildings. And like I said, the aircraft, you can prove that the aircraft, the wings could never get to the central core, which was about 135 by 85 it was a rectangular core with 47 columns, essentially six rows of eight. One, one row had seven columns. It was 47 columns. The wings, when they went through the exterior, which were 14-inch box columns, 40 inches on center, also they, were, they hit multiple floors. So if you can imagine the floors are going in horizontally and the wings were angled up, they would be going through those floors through their stiffness. And the impact on the North Tower is 60 feet from the core. The wings never got to the core. So now you have that there were 767-200ER aircraft, extended range aircraft. They had a, a, a 7,700-mile range. They were going from Boston to the east co west coast. We know they were fueled with about 10,000 gallons. They wouldn't fuel them maximally because that's a waste of, you have to haul that weight around too. So they fuel them with a little bit of margin and enough to get to where they're going. Uh, a, th a thing to note about the fuel here is most of that fuel that were w was on the planes would have been burnt up in that initial fireball. That's that's right. That's right. At least half of it. You could easily say half of it. The fireballs were quite large. And like I said, the wings would not have gotten to the core, but they ignited fires. But if you take the fuselage of the aircraft was 16 and a half feet in diameter. One can imagine you have this grid of steel. Every 40 inches, you have one of these 14-inch box columns on the exterior. Then you have these floors, and then they were bolted. They uh, fastened up to the central core of another 47. They were large columns. Um, you could run that, even if that 
16 and a half foot diamond refuse odds was solid steel. Run it all the way through this 207 foot on a side building and think about it. You put a 20 foot hole through the building. Would you expect it to collapse? I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't right? either. And you make a real right. good point about the the floors being on the edge. Now those are those floors are like box pans that uh, kind of. Well, take... there's there's pans. They're they're four and a half inches deep of concrete, and there's quarter in like two and fifteen sixty four, so a little under quarter inch diameter rebar in a four inch by ten inch grid. Two layers of that in those floors. You're not breaking them up real easy, and it was high tensile strength steel rebar in the floors they call it welded wire fabric but it's quarter inch diameter 90,000 psi steel so to imagine imagine aluminum passing through you know that kind of rebar embedded in concrete it's just not going to happen yeah so the the wings never got to the central core of the building is what i'm saying they put the hole in the outside but they didn't do a lot of damage to this internal the internal columns is what a lot of people don't realize there, there wasn't just floors in between the exterior. There was this huge structure in the center that all the elevators and stairwells ran through. Okay, it was called the central core. It was like a building within a building. Okay, and, so and and once again, how much uh, the the height between floors? What was that uh, in the towers? In the towers, it was twelve foot. And so you've got a, a fuselage that's in uh, uh, is sixteen feet in diameter, and it's got to squeeze through and all the strength of the airplane is in you know is in the skin and the outside of it well, because actually, it's a hollow the keel, tube the keel the, the uh, an aircraft fuselage has a pretty strong keel but that's below the floor so that's but that's still about it's going to have to slide exactly diameter. in between two floors it's going to have to hit exactly in between two floors in order to to make any sort of you know <laughs> egress into the building at all so well it's right that's right well it hit between the 95th and 96th floor i'm talking about the north tower the first one to be hit it hit right on the north face but interestingly this says that's not what caused the collapse they say that fires on the south side the opposite side of the impact is where it started because they say the trusses they were double trusses 32 inches deep quite stout under the floors between the exterior and interior columns, the core columns, that they got, they had their fireproofing knocked off all the way on the other side of the building, okay, from where the plane hit. That's very unlikely, and their own analysis shows it's unlikely because they show the speed of the plane and the speed of the debris in milliseconds. They, they have steps. And they did, they did a uh, fireproofing, they did a test at a large, like, plywood box it was open. They put steel in there and sprayed it with the fireproof, spray on fireproofing, and they fired a shotgun at 500 feet per second at it. Well, of course, it took it off. Well, there was a misfire, and this is in the report, and it's and and it slowed down to uh, uh, somewhere around 30 feet per second, and none of the fireproofing was ripped off. And they shot out of the shotgun like nails. And nuts and you know different pieces of steel, all kind of, all kind of little uh, steel parts. And it when in the misfire where it slowed down to like 30 feet per second or something like that, 50 feet per second, none of the spray-on fireproofing was knocked off the steel. Well, this shows in their analysis the aircraft debris. By the time it gets to the other side of the building, it's well below. It's like half the speed of what I'm talking about in that misfire. So it wouldn't have the speed to knock the stuff off. 
And that's what they say because that was knocked off. The fire heated up these trusses. It pulled in the exterior on the south side, the opposite side of the impact. That caused that wall to buckle. And then the whole thing, uh, the, the uh, propagated. They don't talk about the propagation, the horizontal propagation. They say once that south face buckled, the exterior, it was inevitable. And this stops their analysis there. That's where Dr. Bazant from Northwestern University, civil engineering professor, he put out a paper two days after 9-11 saying how the buildings collapsed because once it started, but he only gets into the vertical propagation. He skips the horizontal propagation too. And this is important because they're saying the south wall buckled. This is the opposite side that the aircraft impacted, okay? Mm -hmm. And because these trusses got hot because their fireproofing was knocked off and pulled in that wall, but they don't talk about the propagation across the entire horizontal, across the 98th floor, they say it happened. That happens across that entire building in less than a second. I want you to think about this. It's a 207-foot square building. The diagonal from the southwest corner to the northeast is just under 300 feet. Those two corners start moving within seven tenths of a second of each other downward. Now, now you I, were. I, I'll eat my hat. If that's due to fire, we've got seven minutes left, actually six and a half. And you uh, did you actually work on the radio tower? Because in one of the videos, you can actually see the top of the tower with the with the radio tower on it starting to tip over to the side. And then it collapses through the path of well, greatest resistance. First. It comes down first. The, the core was taken out. The core failed first. And the 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 TV antenna tower is what it is. There's probably radio antennas on there also that's a stack it was 360 foot tall and 353 tons that was done here near where i live and why i live here it, i i live in blackwood new jersey i worked at rca broadcast which was in Voorhees at the time it's up in maine now what used to be rca broadcast they they designed and built those antennas for tv stations that was done before my time i worked there in the early 90s that was done in the late 70s but i did design those type antennas at any rate, and it was a structural design. That's what I say. Aerospace and communications industry, I designed some heavy antennas. I've mostly worked in aerospace except for some antenna work in the communications industry over the years. Um, Can I ask I, a question sure, since we're sure. kind of wrapping up here? Um, if for, by some miracle, all of a sudden people realize this NIST paper is just total crap. All of a sudden they just said, wow, this isn't even right. And if you by some miracle, they said, okay, this paper that 9-11 uh, engineers, truth, did they, that's wonderful. What would happen? Like, what would be the chain of events that would happen if all of a sudden they realized, oh my gosh, somebody did put, now there's, what would be the th first thing that would happen? Well, you have to go after people that committed the crime, Rachel. But who did it? Wasn't, it wasn't the aircraft. I don't, I can't tell you. That's what I, I mean, who ideas. did it? Well, They've never, and, and so we know there was charges and there had to be charges in the building. None of these three buildings came down due to the aircraft. Building 7 wasn't hit by an aircraft. It comes right. down to free fall and the report doesn't, is non-explanatory. It's, it's, they leave things out. They don't explain it. The towers, they don't explain either. Those reports don't consider the horizontal propagation and they get to Dr. Bazant and he says it's inevitable and here's why the columns would he overestimates the speed of the falling upper section. He underestimates the column strength below it. 
and he overestimates the mass. He uses the max. So, so all those people, all those people, like this doctor that you're talking about, NIST, would they be um, like tr part of the plot? Well, I think they're covering up. Yeah. Would they get I think in trouble helping too? They cover up. Well, they're going to have to answer for things. Yeah. Yeah. This they is huge. Have, this is really big. And there's a lot of people involved in this. And I don't care if people <laughs> say, oh, you know, well, it's a conspiracy. But it's like there's a lot of people involved in this. Well, they're covering up how the buildings really came down. Now, if there's charges in them, they never investigate anybody that had access to the interiors. That's something you could do right away. You could you start an investigation, you would want to interrogate people that had access to those interiors. I'm not talking about office workers. I'm talking about maintenance workers, contractors, people like that. Okay? They never did that? They never did that, that? That has never been done. No. Oh, what the heck? Exactly what one would expect one to say. They never did that, no. And you can see very focused ejections on the corners yeah. of, the, of the North Tower. There's a, a video called the North Tower Exploding. Look at the corners. It's, you can see these jets coming out very close together on either side of the corner. That's where the beams from the walls bolt up to the corner. Mm -hmm. And when you want to take something down like that, you don't want it to be stiffened by the 90-degree wall. So you cut them. It's just like a beer box. Remember the old beer cartons? They were very robust. If you just pushed on them with your feet when you were a kid, it would be hard. But if you cut the corner, they would just flap, you know, flap over. See what I'm saying? The corners look like they were cut, and the walls just pedaled outward like a flower. The wow. exterior, as the interior stuff pushed down on it. You know the core failed first. There's no way that that would happen. They don't talk about this horizontal propagation. It's pretty hard to make that happen. It costs a 300-foot diagonal building in less than a second. Without really uh, going into the engineering, we also see videos of these huge, massive grid structures, you know, from the exterior of the building being ejected some 600 feet and being uh, right. sticking into other right. buildings. So if it was a well, straight I don't down even collapse, go, I don't even go with that. I just talk about you can't, you can't. The, the engineering explanations we've gotten aren't good. I think the squibs coming out in the video are very good evidence of charges. Okay, and we've got a minute and a half, and so you're a member of AE911truth.org, I believe, and uh, I'm a signatory as a as a handyman. Uh, but Everybody needs to support that group with just a small amount each month. If we can all do that, a couple dollars a month. You've done billboard <laughs> campaigns. You did a, a, a three skylight, which I thought was just brilliant. You had three skylights shining into the uh, sky in one anniversary, you know, indicating that three buildings came down because nobody talks about the third building. So great. Well, something even more important right now is that we wrote a paper last summer called 15 Years Later, calling, and then says there's a call, and 15 years later on the physics of high rise building collapses. It was printed in the European uh, uh, Europhysics News, which is the magazine of the European Physical Society. It's just like Physics Today is the magazine of the American Physical Society. That's the European Physics Society. Again, it's 15 years later on the physics of high-rise building collapses. It's a six-page article, 3,000-word article. I, I suggest everybody read that, and you'll get all these details. Just Tony, we Google. really appreciate you coming on. We're out of time, so we got to go out with our music. Thanks much, Tony. Yeah, thank you, Tony. You rock.
Welcome to Shadow Citizen with Rachel McIntosh and Robo Cell. <laughs> <laughs> 